You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast, the number one source for hunting and fishing information, strategy and tactics, as well as conversations surrounding conservation efforts and other outdoor activities in the great state of Iowa. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this episode of the Iowa Sportsman Podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Iowa Sportsman Podcast. My name is Dan Johnson. I'm your host. And today we are talking with returning guest and now becoming a good friend, Mr. Steve Wiseman, about the 2019 roadside survey that the Iowa DNR does for birds like pheasant, partridge, quail, and uh, we're going to talk about how habitat has been in a big decline, a big loss for the last uh, several decades. Uh, this is a really informative podcast. Uh, Steve is very knowledgeable about uh, topics like this, and um, he kind of talks about this annual report that the that they do we talk about the numbers we talk about trends we talk about weather we talk about hunter decline and all the things that kind of snowball into this uh this this habitat loss the decline of the birds so forth and so on but there is a light at the end of the tunnel it looks like we're on kind of a a 10-year positive trend as far as the amount of habitat that's starting to come back the uh the population of the birds that are starting to come back and hunter harvest numbers that are starting to come back for the pheasant and quail as well. So a really awesome podcast. It's chock full of uh, really good information. So a huge shout out to Steve for making that happen. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this particular podcast, we got to say thank you to our partners over at Bondurant Custom Furniture. These guys have a ton of great products, right? And the only way to really see what I'm talking about is go to BondurantCustomFurniture.com, go to their gallery on their website, and take a look at all of the products that these guys uh, these guys are making. They're really known for taking old whiskey barrels, refurbishing them, and then turning them into products like chairs and tables and art pieces of art that you can hang on your wall clocks you name it these guys can do it uh whether you have an idea in your head you call them up say hey i want you to make a table that looks like this whatever it's custom furniture for a reason these guys are really good at what they do so once again go check out bondurantcustomfurniture.com if you have a question go to their website pull up their phone number give them a call and these guys are going to be happy to answer any questions that you might have so we've paid the bills Let's get into today's podcast with good buddy, Steve Wiseman. All right. We are back with a returning guest, Mr. Steve Wiseman. How you doing, man? Excellent, Dan. Excellent. 
So let me ask you, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how your fishing's been this summer. Um, Fishing, and I can give you an updated report. Um, I've got lots of bluegills. That's been great on West Okaboji. And Spirit Lake has been lights out for walleyes. Gotcha. And it's still going strong. A week ago, yeah, a weekend ago, the, the pig lift tournament was held and that's the acronym for Pocahontas, Iowa, Great Lakes invitational fishing tournament. And it's teams of three, uh, in a boat. And one person has to have at one time been from Pocahontas County. Okay. Well, I, I fished it. It's been going for 31 years and I fished for 29 and a friend of mine, John Amick is grew up in Pocahontas. He and his wife. And so he's our folky connection. I taught school with John for a lot of years in Esterville. And then Bill Elling was another teacher in Esterville. We all three have been friends since the dark ages. And so we have fished this tournament. Well, this last weekend, not this weekend, but the weekend before, they had walleye was one of the, we fished panfish. A lot of the other teams fished walleyes on big spirit. Are you ready for this? Two hundred and fifteen slot fish between seventeen and twenty-two inches, thirteen over the slot up to twenty-six and a half, eighty-four between fourteen and seventeen inches, and then oodles below that. What's the slot? The slot is seventeen inches to twenty-two inches. Okay, all right. So we're talking about fat fish. Yeah. So and it sounds to me like the fishing slot. was good. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. And that doesn't include all of the sub 14s that they threw back. Right. How many uh how many fish did your boat take away or get in the boat? Well, we we fish panfish. We've done okay. that forever. I one time I tried fishing with the uh against the walleye guys and we ended up in oh maybe seventh place and I decided that's not good enough. I can't compete with these guys, so I'm going to panfish. So I think a bluegill and crappies and perch are the three panfish choices. And we've probably won it maybe 20 times over the years. <laughs> 20 but, times but, out of 29 years. That's pretty good. Not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> but But the last two years, some of the teams have found crappies. And we brought in five point five pounds ten ounces worth for ten bluegills. Yep, that's your limit, and that's okay. Those are nice sized gills. They're running eight and a half to nine inches. The first place team brought in ten crappies weighing ten pounds six ounces. Whoa, whoa, that kicked <laughs> our you know what, and and they they were twelve thirteen inch fish. Man. I think, wow, they were beautiful black crappies. Yeah. I can, I can remember I, the I last, think, the last time we talked, you were, you were tell, telling me about if you can find up there in those great lakes, if you can find a patch of wherever these crappie are hanging out, you're going to have a great time on the water. Oh my, that's for sure. And a nine inch bluegill is a beautiful fish, but it cannot handle a 12-inch crappie, That's or 13-inch. Right. That's right. But it can handle 
an 11 inch perch. Yeah. But, but it can't touch, touch, not a big black crappie. Nope. Yep. Well, that's awesome that uh, that the fishing's been good up there. Has that was that just that weekend, or has the fishing kind of been no, good all summer? All summer, but right in the last two weeks, it's gone to this deep basin crankbait bite. Yeah. And these pokey guys, what they do, they'll put four planer boards out on the side and then run two straight out the back, and they'll run an assortment of. Of course, if they pre-fish, they know what they're going to do. But if they haven't, they'll run uh, a six different cranks out there at different depths and slowly hone in on what what are the one, two, or three prevalent baits yeah. and what's the depth. And, you know, one, once they do that run, you know, and with our modern locators, you, you, can, you have a crumb trail. And if you get on a crumb trail, and wherever you get a bite, you you click an icon, and it's a waypoint. Pretty soon, you might have three or four waypoints over a quarter of a mile. So then you just focus on that, and and you maybe move left or right just a little bit, and you've honed in on those fish. And if they're active, and especially with crankbaits, that's a reactionary bite. They're not smelling anything. They're not looking. It's a reactionary bite that's coming by. Bam. So, and, and it's good. It's been good for, I would guess, about three weeks now doing that kind of fishing. That's awesome. Well, that's yeah. good. That's good. Your line's staying wet then. Yes, it is. And uh, we're coming into uh, the, the goose season this weekend, but um, that's going to be interesting because we've had enough rain up here in northwest Iowa. We don't have hardly any silage. Yeah fields at all and so they're in pastures they're in uh, uh ground that wasn't planted that's been um disked up and a little green stuff coming um, it, it's it, there's some water in some of these fields they're there it, it's going to be an interesting i finding the the geese yeah yeah well that's uh something you're you're better at me then because uh, i don't even i don't even waterfowl hunt and uh i know i have some buddies who are straight waterfowl hunters so they they get they get excited about the season regardless of you know what the water's doing or what the you know where we are throughout the harvest they're going and they're finding them yep yep and i i find i i don't quite have the drive being in my 70s now that I had when I was in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. That that early 4 o'clock in the morning isn't quite as appealing as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear that. I hear that. Well, uh, it's good to hear that you're having a fun summer doing some fishing, but today we're going to talk about this, the 2019 Iowa August Roadside Survey. Okay, and this includes uh, species like the pheasant, the quail, and even even some rabbits. But um, I want to I want to get into the data here in just a little bit. But with you being from you're from North Dakota, right, or South Dakota? South South Dakota. Okay, originally from South Dakota, then you moved to Iowa. I want you to talk a little bit about what it was like pheasant hunting 
when you were a kid in in the quote unquote glory days of pheasant hunting in Iowa? Okay, well, it it, it really was the the '60s was a soil bank time. What's that and, mean? And most of, and and that means it was land was put aside to not be cropped because there was just too much too much crop out there. Prices were bad. They wanted to get uh, supply and demand changed, so they made the soil bank program, and you could enroll land into the soil bank. And it was a mixture of brome and alfalfa, <clears throat> not the type of wonderful stuff we have nowadays with our big blue stem, little blue stem, uh, switchgrass, the forbs, and all the native prairies. <clears throat> it's much better stuff than what we had in those days. But it, it was a soil bank time. And <clears throat> in the early 60s, as a matter of fact, Iowa was the pheasant capital of the world. Right. Guaranteed. It was. I mean, we, we're going to be talking about these roadside counts and probably the best of all the areas in Iowa was Southwest Iowa up yeah. until about 1980, late 70s, somewhere in there. Yeah. There was a time when um, Southwest Iowa would have 123 birds per 30 mile route. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. That's huge. But, and, and it, I, I think it's a, it's a lot of things. It's, it was a soil bank. But it was also a time when you had uh, oats and wheat fields, you know. Uh, you had uh, fence rows, and there were all oh, thickets and plum thickets and stuff like that in those fence rows. Yep. And we didn't have the, the Roundup Ready stuff that no weed showed up. There, there, the corn was grassy. It had... Uh, you know, it, it was kind of a dirty field, but it was great for pheasants. Yeah. Um, I can remember hunting up around Redfield and, and Redfield still today names itself the pheasant capital of the world. And I can remember as a kid going up to Redfield Airport. I lived about 10 miles south of there and Redfield is between Aberdeen and Huron, if any of you know where that is. But anyway, we, I would go, my mom would take me up to Redfield just to see the airport. There would be as many as 80 planes, private planes that had come into Redfield to pheasant hunt. Yeah. It just blew, I mean, it, it was an event. Right. As a matter of fact, Hank, right. Hank Aaron, who was the home run king of the world pheasant hunted with my father-in-law oh that's awesome and i have a baseball that he signed to my my brother-in-law to richie from hank aaron yeah and yeah. so it was really cool well iowa was the same situation iowa at that time actually was the pheasant state capital of the world and we would have anywhere from thirty to 50,000 non-resident hunters that would come here. And, and they would stay a week. And they would come different times of the year. Some liked the late season. Others liked the early season. That depended on when the harvest was. You know, that kind of stuff. Incredible stuff. 
And when you talk glory days, they were glory days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and so things have changed a lot, and there there are a lot of reasons, and we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit later about how that's changed. But I can remember um, so, growing up. Let's see, I was um, I grew up in uh, well, mostly southeast Iowa, but my family is all from the Parkersburg Applington area west of Cedar Falls, and my uh-huh. uncles would take me out pheasant hunting. That's like that. Other than fishing, pheasant hunting was my first kind of uh, hunting experience, right? And I can remember yeah. in the – and it wasn't as high as it was uh, in the 60s and 70s, but I can remember going into a, a field that had a buffer strip, and there was always – a pheasant that we that the dog kicked up in these buffer strips or these yep. fence rows or these old farm lots yep. or we we were always running into pheasants we we always would get you know one or two on a on an afternoon something real simple real quick and then I got into right. then I got into college and that was in the early 2000s I would go out with my roommate and that was up in Forest City Iowa mm-hmm. and we would mm-hmm. go out and try to do some pheasant hunting there and it was a completely different story then, uh, yep. ten years later. Yep. So, yep. Um, I I yep. can remember really good, and then I can remember really bad uh, pheasant hunting as well. And I think the best place to kind of start this off is, why don't you share with us, based off of this report and your your own personal knowledge of what makes good, let's say, pheasant and upland bird habitat. Okay. We're going to talk about, about three different things. We're going to talk about the habitat, and we're going to talk about winter and spring weather conditions. Right. Those three things, I mean, that's the pie that makes or breaks a pheasant season. Yeah. Now, habitat, um, since between 1990, when you, when you talk about when things started to fall apart, through 2018, here's a here's a number that's going to just blow your mind. We have lost the state of Iowa 2,886 square miles of pheasant habitat. This habitat was a mix of small grains, hay, alfalfa, and conservation reserve program. That's equivalent to a 10 mile wide strip from Davenport, Iowa to Omaha. Gotcha. That's a big chunk of land. That's huge. You know, and, and so that's bits and pieces uh, uh, across the state, you know. Right. And and uh, when that Conservation Reserve program came in, uh, in, in the 80s, late 80s, that, that was just awesome. I mean, our numbers just exploded. And uh, up here in Northwest Iowa, we're blessed with a lot of public ground. We really are. In Clay County, um, Dickinson County, Emmett County, Palo Alto County, Kasuth County, uh, and, and those areas, there's a lot of pheasant habitat. Gotcha. And so the numbers still stick pretty good. Um, 
the old days of brome and alfalfa for cover it's terrible winter cover yeah if you've ever watched brome it falls flat the first snowfall it's down and and it's flat and and it's terrible winter cover it just is but you get your mix of prairie tall prairie grasses and your 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 flowers and forbs and one of the things that they've added with these plantings now is flowers, native flowers. And the idea is to help our pollinators because our, our pollinators have struggled and our uh, monarch butterflies have struggled. And so you'll see it in a lot of road ditches on highways now, some tall grass prairie and flowers. We went to a wedding in, in Des Moines, oh, the first week in September. And when we got down around Pomeroy and headed towards Fort Dodge, I have it had to have been a migration. I have never seen so many butterflies on the road in my life. You could not miss them. Wow. It's like they had a suicide mission. I mean, it was just <laughs> incredible. And you looked out in the fields, and they were there too. So it had to have been some kind of migration. It wasn't monarchs. It was a, a variety of other butterflies. But I know that that habitat that has been planted along those interstates and stuff like that and, and the four-lane highways has made that difference. Yeah, yeah. So it's also made a difference. You know, when you have tall grass prairie and uh, you get a, a, a winter storm, it might bend over and go down, but there's still going to be protection. It's going to become like a little dome. And the, the, the snow will be on the top, and those pheasants will be under that. And so that that's one huge thing. A second huge thing is if you have some water nearby for those uh, pheasants. And it could be a slough or whatever, but that helps a lot. And then those sloughs have that huge uh, cattail. And those cattails are tremendous for... Uh, holding pheasants in the winter. Yeah. And it's difficult for people to walk through, especially old guys like me. A dog, it's it's hard work for a dog too, you know. Yeah. And there are so many runways and alleys for those pheasants to escape. And then there are always some springs, there are always some muskrat lodges, things like that. So there's always a little bit of open water somewhere where those pheasants can get a drink. Um if, if there happens to be a feedlot uh, nearby, um, you're going to see pheasants on snowy, where, when snow has caused a lot of problems, they'll move to uh, tree belts, shelter belts, and they'll eat right out there with the, with the cattle. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and so all those things are, that, that makes habitat. Yeah. It just so, does. And, and we're... Go ahead. What What do you think that you know? You talked about these numbers of this this uh, millions of eight. You know, I think I saw, I saw one point eight million acres of habitat loss for that that two thousand eight hundred and eighty six square miles right. of habitat loss. What yep. did, was over time? Was that in a tribute to something like soybean and corn prices would go up? So they took they took um, 
the CRP out and then they started planting or they started burning ditches or they started spraying or do you happen to know what maybe if if there was something specific that started that that habitat loss i think all of the above gotcha if if something has happened over the years and i i think it's all of the above right i i mean um we hear we've got to feed the world and so we we've we've utilized as much land as we possibly can i'm a big proponent for landowners who are willing to they have a low land say that floods out seven out of ten years and so their crop insurance takes care of that but and they have to replant but it usually doesn't produce right Uh, there are options out there some continuous programs that they could enroll that into uh, a wetland and then do a buffer around of say 50 yards or whatever it is and um They'll get paid for that. <clears throat> Plus, they don't have to plant it. They don't have to use uh, the, lose the cost of the fertilizer, the cost of the seed, and all that kind of stuff. What it does do, though, it it causes issues. We've got such big equipment now that that farmers want to go straight. They don't want to have to go around and do that kind of stuff. Yep. But to me, that, that that's an answer to a pheasant issue. It's also an answer. Those wetlands, I mean, historically, those wetlands are there for a reason. Yeah. To control um, flooding. Yep. And, and so those wetlands fill. Those wetlands also take in the nitrates and phosphates and things like that from the soil, and they help take care of that yeah and they've got six deep deep roots um that there won't be erosion there won't be and so there's a practice called edge of field practice um where uh, landowners can put in um a, a strip of tall grass prairie and it will greatly diminish the water that goes off of that land tremendous yeah. advantage and what you know what what we do i know tiling i know what we're trying to do with that but what we're doing is passing the water downstream to right. somewhere else that's right. all we're doing and so if we can conserve more on each individual property we're conserving soil we're con- conserving all kinds of things plus we're helping our habitat for pheasants or um for ducks and geese yeah. you know and or um, uh, red wing blackbirds, you know, that type of thing. So right. I, I think all of that has been, is part of the issue and it's, we're slowly moving, but it's, it's, it's a slow, slow process and I want to go fast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, I had a, uh, uh, a farmer and for years, uh, the farmer had an old, I think it was like a, five or seven I, I can't remember row combine it was an old mm-hmm. one he bought it in the late 70s and it wasn't very efficient right i liked this combine because it, it provided me with a great late season deer hunting uh oh, location yeah. now yep. 
his son, when he retired, his son took over and his son upgraded this combine to this magnificent piece of equipment that was way more efficient. And I can remember the first year they combined that, that, that late season spot went bye-bye because there was no waste grain on the ground. Right. And that also made the pheasant population go away um, from there as well, just because of the efficiency of the combine. And again, some of these farming practices where they are, they're farming right up to the edge of the timber or the fence with, with no, with no buffer strips there. Um, So, you know, so that, so it's almost like this worst case scenario of all these things kind of snowballed to, have this downward trend in the pheasant population. Has there been anything that, uh, well, before I get into that, we haven't even talked about the other two things yet that you mentioned, and that was wet springs and uh, wet high precipitation winters. So why don't you talk in in detail about those two things? Okay. Now, it's brewing fact. For 57 years, we've had this survey. And so if, if you want to look at data, you can look at that and you can see trends. And I'll guarantee you that Todd Bogachutz with uh, the wildlife uh, uh, biologist, he can tell you, I think, within 1%. By the time the spring has ended, where we're going to end up. Yeah. Unless there happens to be some incredible summer Uh, event or something like that but now over the 57 years this is what's proven true pheasant numbers increase with mild winters and that's averaging less than 19 inches of snow 19 inches or less so basically uh, a little bit under two feet of snow followed by warm dry springs with less than six inches of rainfall if you have more than 30 inches of snow and more than eight inches of rainfall and it's cold and wet in the spring, then things are going to drop. Yeah. Now, last year, for instance, now 2018 hunting was, was pretty good. 2019 is going to be not as quite as good. Last year, 39.1 inches of snowfall in northwest Iowa. Uh, right. Or across the state. Northwest Iowa had 36. The total spring rainfall from April 1st to May 31st was 11 inches. And then, and that was April, May. And then in June, we had some really flood, flooding around here. I'm seeing right now little pheasants. And we're talking about, this was, in the middle of September, we're talking about little pheasants that can fly. Yeah. There's no coloring. There's no nothing. So they're the size of a partridge. Yeah. And and so you know that second and third hatches. And with each hatch, the pheasant's uh, number of eggs is, is fewer each time. And so we've just been hit um, for the last few years. We haven't had a series of, of winters where 
we can safely say we didn't have a lot of snow. Maybe we had a foot or a foot and a half the whole year, that type of stuff. It's kind of been all over. And, and of course, last winter was really bad down in southern Iowa. They had made great progress in their quail numbers. Yeah. And last winter just nailed them. Yeah. And so their numbers have dropped drastically. That's one so thing, the, the, that's one thing that I've noticed is uh, in the past five or six years, I've actually, uh, I've actually seen, you know, and, I, and this is just me driving to and from places on gravel roads and maybe getting out and walking through a CRP field uh, to my deer hunting stand, right? I don't do a lot of uh, uh, pheasant hunting. But I have seen in the last three, three, four years, an increase. And this is just my personal Dan Johnson driving the back roads of Iowa survey. I've, I've noticed an uptick in this. But I also noticed that there was way less after, uh, somewhere around the, uh, I'm looking at this graph here, and it shows three consecutive winters with 30 inches of snowfall or more. Uh, and that was in 19, oh, the early 80s. And I like looking at yep. this graph because it shows that the, the, the weather is a direct reflection of the population. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, pheasant pop, they are very resilient birds. Right. They will bounce back. But you know, when you get a haymaker thrown at you, yeah. winter after winter after winter, and then one of the one of the issues is when you've got surviving population, uh, the roosters will outcompete the hens for the food. Well, one rooster can service a lot of hens. Yeah. So it's better to have fewer roosters than hens out there because when when push comes to shove, the rooster's going to win. Yeah. Yeah. And we know who who makes the clutch and the eight or ten eggs in the nest. Yeah. It's not the old man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, and that's one interesting piece that I just learned today from what you said. It sounds like uh, a hen can have multiple uh, nests in one year. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the first one might be destroyed uh, by water, uh, flooding. Uh, it might be destroyed by a raccoon. Yeah. Might be destroyed by, uh, y- you know, a, a coyote. Uh, there are lots of different predators out there, uh, skunks, raccoons, coyotes. Yeah. Um, and, and then they get predated from above by hawks. Right. Also, so there are lots of, uh, lots of things they have to cope with and deal with. And uh, if the first nest gets destroyed, they will come back and, and, and re-nest. Gotcha. Um, and that's why you will see some mixtures of sizes uh, because of that. Right, right. Um, so, and then uh, here, when I, here in the 2010, it looks like somewhere, it was like 2010 or 2011, I can't really tell on this graph, but that has shown an all-time low uh, in the the statewide pheasant population. And I'm looking at some other graphs right here. And I want to see if 2000, yep, 2010, roughly for all the other animals as well. Um, 
was at close to an all-time low as well because because of the five consecutive winters with 30 or more inches of snow but the the positive news here is it looks like from this roadside survey and from the uh the the statewide pheasant harvest that we are seeing a growth trend from 2010 to to this year oh yes yeah there's no doubt no doubt um, what we are seeing too, though, is a loss of hunters. Yes. Um, they figure we might uh, harvest maybe up to 250,000 birds this year, and that's down. Yeah. Uh, Bogachut says that we have probably the, the uh, capabilities of harvesting 400,000, but we won't have the hunters. And so numbers are down bag-wise because of that. We yeah. don't get the out-of-staters like we used to. Gotcha. And, and so it all correlates. And, and part of the issue, too, is getting youngsters who are taught to love hunting and to go out and experience it. And there are a lot of kids that do not have that opportunity anymore. Yeah. Um, there aren't adults in their lives that will take them. They have their video games. They have all kinds of different things they're doing, a lot of them sedentary, that are not what we did as we grew up. Right, right. Well, aside from the hunter, you know, the hunter retention, you know, that's, that's, hunter retention is a big problem that's going to be facing it. And um, I think the Quality Deer Management Association put out a report that said, they're roughly around 70 years of age, give or take a couple of years, is when you can kind of see a hard stop for um, adults and when they when they actually stop hunting and they stop going out. They may still buy a tag, but they, they don't participate as much as they used to. Um, right. And with the, the quote-unquote baby boom, uh, crowd, which would have been, you know, people who were born in the, uh, at the end of the forties and early fifties, when everybody was coming back from world war two, that generation is hitting that 70 years of age. So in the next 12 years, we're going to see a gigantic decrease in hunter numbers based off of just that, that fact right there. Yeah, we will. We will. So now I know this. This is a little off the, the subject, but I talked to Mike Hawkins, the biologist at, at the hatchery here in Spirit Lake. He just had all of the Spirit Lake kids, kindergarten through fourth grade. They did two days out at the hatchery, where they did all kinds of different stations, and they had the ponds filled with uh, sunfish and and. Uh, yellow bass and bullheads and stuff like that. And the kids caught the heck out of the fish. There were adults, there were parents there, and they just had a great time. Well, that's, that can hook somebody, literally, yeah. into that sport of fishing. But how do we do that for hunting? Yeah. I know we have hunter education courses, and then they do some target practicing, and they do black powder, and they... They see decoys and stuff like that. 
but to get them, and I know we have youth, youth uh, pheasant day and we have youth uh, duck day, but, but it's just not the same as doing something like that. Right. Right. And I also read uh, a stat that it takes roughly three years of mentorship to actually get someone then to go out and continue hunting on their own for the rest of their life. Right. So they, if they are, if you, if you stop mentoring them within three years, there's a good chance that they don't become uh, licensed buying hunters. Right. They, right. They, they need that mentorship on average of three years or more to really get them hooked and educated to know what to do when they go in to the woods or on the water. So right. um, it like recruiting hunters is not an easy task. No, it is not. It is difficult. Yeah. So, let's... you know, I, I found, I found one other staff that I, I wanted to, to share with you uh, just a, a little bit. And th- this is what happens with overwinter hen survival. Okay. And brood survival and nest survival. Statewide last the, during this roadside count, there were 16% fewer hens, 21% fewer chicks counted on routes this year. And that suggests for overwinter hen survival and nest success and chick survival. And from a statewide perspective, Poor winter hen survival and nest success contributes to this decline. Yeah. And, you know, you're dealing with the same routes every year on gravel roads from August 1st to August 15th. They pick days of heavy dew, no wind, and sun. And that brings the hen and her chicks out onto the gravel road. And and they they are thirty mile routes and they're the same ones every year, and so that reflects over fifty seven years what may have happened to that topography over that time. You know, so we have the test of time for all these two hundred and eighteen routes for fifty seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So so has the. Iowa DNR or Department of Natural Resources, have they done anything to uh, implement maybe new laws, open up the CRP um, again so that uh, we can get more acreage of habitat for these birds or have done anything different so that we can start saving this? It's not the DNR so much. It's the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, when it comes to uh, getting land into CRP, it comes down to what the U.S. Department of Agriculture says the whole nation can have. And they have for 2019, uh, and you can start bidding, I think, towards the, the end of 2018. Across the country, it's 25 million acres. Yeah. Well, you've got 48 contingent states, you know, and there are continuous practices. So you can do buffer strips and you can do things. Um, 
but that is a whole tracts of land. That That is the general CRP state, uh, enrollment. And from what I have learned in this, the rental rates, it sounds like they're not going to, when you, when you bid in in the general CRP um, sign up, you bid. Yeah. And it's a competitive bid. And if you go too high, you're cut out. And there are all kinds of factors like type of soil, type of uh, uh, land slope, you know, all that kind of stuff. Is there water? Is there this or that and the other thing? That all is part of the formula. Are you in an area where there's a shortage of dust nesting? Well, then you get some extra points. And then you have, so you have all those things added up, and then you have the bid. If you say they'll allow in their land of dreams, they'll allow $195 an acre. If you offer 200, you don't get it. You don't get in. Yeah. And so you have to figure out what, what's going to be the, the weight. And if it's down at around 150 bucks an acre, which sounds like a lot of money, but if you can get 250 to 275 or more farming it, what farmer is going to want to lose 100 to 125 bucks an acre? Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so it's kind of a, you're playing kind of a, a two end stick, you know, a sharp pointed stick on both ends is what yeah. you're doing. Absolutely. So uh, that's what the Department of Agriculture is kind of doing. You know, as an avid pheasant hunter, uh, and just you know, you know the love of the sport. What do you What do you think needs to be done to really get this uh, this population to rebound and this habitat uh, problem to be fixed? Number one, we have to have better winters and springs. Yeah, that's we out of our control, do. unfortunately. It is, and and unfortunately, what we considered. Uh, real climate extremes have for the last few years kind of been the norm. Yeah. And it becomes a question, is that going to be the norm? And if that does become the norm and we have more snowfall, more wet, cold springs followed by flooding, um, we probably won't rebound. Habitat is great, but you got to have a little help. Right. You know, and... I, I think the DNR, um, I mean, and the Iowa Heritage Foundation, we, there have been a lot of, there's a lot of land that's being purchased and then utilized for hunting. I know we do have some walk, walk-in hunting that we've had landowners who have land that is um, pheasant habitat that they will allow hunters to go onto their land. So I think that the biologists, both uh, the Pheasants Forever biologists and the DNR biologists are really working at, at trying to do that. Um, it comes down to, to uh, the C CRP sign-up and, and what can be done. You know, some people say, well, why don't we just go ahead and stock a bunch of pheasants? Well, stocking doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, I've got a little history do you, you have a little time for a little history let's hear it okay pheasants were brought from china mm -hmm. another chinese ringneck pheasant yep i owned any in 1982 
And so the initial stocking came from China. In what year was that? And that was in 1882. 1882, okay. Oregon. Iowa's wild population happened to a release of the Oregon birds' descendants. Okay. And an early 1900 windstorm turned loose 2,000 pheasants from a guy by the name of William Benton near Cedar Falls had a game farm. And it was a really bad storm and windstorm, and that let those pheasants out. And at that time, there was small grain, there was hay, there was corn, there was pasture, had a little bit of everything, and they actually thrived. They survived in that. And by 1924, 1925, they were relocating wild birds to different parts of the state. And the first pheasant season was October 20th through the 22nd, 1925. In Kasuth, Humboldt, Winnebago, Hancock, Wright, Cerro Gorda, uh, Franklin, Mitchell, Floyd, Butler, and Grundy, Blackhawk, and Bremer counties. Awesome. And it, it was uh, three days. And it started at a uh, half hour before sunrise and ended at noon. That's um, crazy. We tried, they, they tried... Um, having state game farms that would help, um, but but really the pen-raised pheasants, they didn't contribute to the bird numbers. They might contribute to the bag numbers and getting shot, right? But they didn't really contribute to the wild bird numbers. Got ya. Okay, so um, it it's really an interesting. Um, Do you happen to know how many hunters took part in that first season? I really don't. No, I don't. That'd be an interesting number to know. I I did see a thing when I was on the internet looking at some stuff. I actually saw an Iowa paper that talked about that first hunt. So I think you could go on and you could kind of read that. It was the Iowa might even have been the Iowa um, publication um, for, for the DNR, and right. it, it was it was interesting, but I, I didn't know. Gotcha. But the last game, the last game farm uh, was closed uh, in the early seventies. Right. Right. Okay. That's uh, it, that's interesting, interesting stuff. Yes. Yeah. It really is. Um, well. I tell you what, Steve, uh, it's always a pleasure getting to talk with you. I know that, uh, you know, deer hunting season is coming up quick. You know, we got uh, pheasant season that's uh, coming up really quick. And I think, you know, it's awesome to talk about strategy uh, and, you know, how to kill them. But I think this kind of information is just as equally as important for us as hunters to be aware of not only hunting them, but what gives us the opportunity to hunt them and that's having sustainable numbers and uh you know it's good to see that the the, that the population is on a bit of a rebound since 2010 it's trending up but um still i i it looks like there's a lot that needs to be done in the state of iowa to get this uh this population back to uh a little bit not necessarily the glory days but a little bit higher than what they're currently at 
Right. I, I agree. And, and, you know, it, it takes everybody. That's right. Um, it, it, it takes the, the farmers, it takes the landowners, it takes the hunters. Um, uh, it takes organizations like Pheasants Forever. It takes the Iowa DNR. It takes all of those things. And together, that whole group can make it happen. Can it ever go back to, you know, a million birds in a, in a year? Probably not. Yeah. You know, but, but if we could get the hunters in the field, you know, and one of the things when you don't have the hunters in the field, they do not pay for the license. They do not pay for the shells. They do not pay for those things. And all of that affects the Department of uh, Natural Resources and the money that's generated as revenue to be able to do the things that we expect the DNR to do. Right. Absolutely. That's huge. Yep. Totally huge. Absolutely. Um, so I, I've always been a firm believer of this. And, I, and when I retire, of course, I have a lifetime license now, but uh, I really believe if people want to see better bees and better butterflies and more songbirds and they want to see more ducks and they want to see more pheasants and more deer, that type of thing, buy a hunting license, buy a fishing license. Right, right. Because all that money goes to those resources. It's not like it goes out the window. It's then used to give us that walleye fishing we have on Big Spirit Lake. It it, it gives us uh, some of the, the land that the DNR manages for upland. It, it gives us hatchery money for uh, rat, rat, Lake Rathbun, you know, all of those things. And it also there are songbirds and all of those things that reap benefits from this type of thing. So even if you don't hunt or don't fish, that's as good a donation as you can get. And it's about as cheap as taking a family of four out to a meal at McDonald's. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, Steve, man, I, I really appreciate our talk today. Thanks for stopping on, as always, and chit-chatting with us. And uh, good luck the rest of the fishing season. And uh, if you get out and do some pheasant hunting, good luck then as well. You bet. And I would like to mention that uh, coming up in October, the, the DNR is going to have a series of meetings for waterfowl framework, uh, refuges, things like that. And so you can go to these places around the state and give your opinion on what you think of the seasons and all of that kind of stuff. And this will be taken into consideration when they take that to the to the Waterfowl Federation with the U, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah. So it's very important that we do this. Um, I have a bone of contention about I don't like the early teal season. I'd rather have the five-day third week in September duck season that you can shoot any duck. Yeah. And th that's one of the things I'm registering. And, and I think people need to do that because they do listen. We yeah. think they don't, but they do listen. That's how changes are made. That's how the, 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 the panfish limit came on uh, the Iowa Great Lakes here because people made enough noise and wanted that 25 limit of, gills and perch and, and uh, crappies. Yeah. Otherwise, we had no limit on gills or on crappies. Yeah. Yeah. So Your voice matters type I, of deal. I, 
Yes, that's right. Awesome. All right, Steve. Well, thanks again, and uh, have a good rest yeah. of your day. Yep, you too. Thanks, Dan. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another Iowa Sportsman podcast in the books. If you're not following along on the Iowa Sportsman Facebook page or if you have yet to visit the Iowa Sportsman website, iowasportsman.com, you need to go check it out because not only do we provide really good content here on the podcast, but we also provide really good content through the website and through the Iowa Sportsman magazine. So you listen to the podcast you go to the website, but you also subscribe to the magazine. Uh, now you got the trifecta, right? You're getting a ton of great information about all the hunting and fishing and conservation efforts that are going on in the state of Iowa. And uh, it's just a win-win for everybody. So thank you for that. Another huge shout out to our partners at Bondurant Custom Furniture. Go check it out, bondurantcustomfurniture.com. And lastly, Wherever you download your podcasts, whether it is uh, on iTunes or another location, please subscribe. That allows us to get our content to you directly without having to go search for it. Uh, There's that. And then if there's someone maybe a little bit older who is an avid outdoorsman, uh, fisherman, but they might be just, uh, you know, it's harder for them to get outside, man, let them know about this podcast because... I know that when I can't get outside, I love listening to things that I love to do, like hunting and fishing. And, uh, man, we just put out a lot of that. So uh, hopefully everybody has a great weekend, a great uh, start to next week. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you next time. Mm